When I was uh, six years old, I got a present. It was my first record player. And with that record player, packaged right in there with it, my parents got me my first record. It's a 45 RPM version, a bridge version of Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. It came with a color booklet, again, an abridged version of the story. And within a few hours, I had this thing memorized. It took you all the way from the Hoth system to the murky swamps of Dagobah to Cloud City with the infamous showdown. Luke, I'm your father, scene, all of it there. Loved it, ate it up. Still love it. Still love the Dagobah system, too. (laughs) By the way, next week uh, is May the 4th be with you. And I realize this week that I'm not preaching next week. Our sister Deb is bringing the word so she can do something Star Wars. I don't know. (laughs) But I just had to get my force fix in today. It just so happens that the Dagobah scene actually illustrates our biblical passage tonight quite well. So we're going to be playing with that a little bit as we go on. Tim set us up really well with the end of chapter 15. And I want to invite you to stand one more time as uh, we read the beginning of chapter 16 in Matthew's Gospel. This is where we're going to sit tonight and focus. And it goes like this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up testing Jesus. They asked him to show them, a sign, uh, show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the sign of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it then that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to them, Beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage, Matthew 16, verses 1 through 12, breaks up really nicely in two sections. It just does it naturally, so I'm not going to mess with that. We'll take each section in turn as we work through it. And this first section introduces us to a confrontation between Jesus and the representatives of two Jewish groups. The first group is called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a lay movement of religious leaders. They were passionate about following the scriptures. But as often happens with people with great passion or zeal, be it a sports fan or a religious fanatic, uh, the Pharisees began to revere the book more than the content in the book. They began to revere the scriptures and the laws more than the one that the scriptures and laws were pointing to. 
They began to take it on themselves to protect the holiness of God rather than to look to that God to make them more holy. And where they most often got crosswise of Jesus is when they would enforce their human regulations rather than showing true love to others and pastoring their own people. Now, the other group in this confrontation were called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly class. They were the ones who were actually the ordained clergy. They were in charge of the temple and the sacrificial system. And during the time our story takes place, many, and hear me say that many, not all, but many of the Sadducees had given up on the core of their religious faith, and they had bought into being more political leaders than religious leaders. They were more liaisons between Rome and Israel, peacekeepers, rather than hardcore uh, religious priests. Now the interesting things uh, about these two groups is that on a normal day, any given day, they didn't like each other at all. The Pharisees taught, or, or thought that the Sadducees were too secular. They were too sold out to the political realm of things. And the Sadducees thought that the Pharisees were religious extremists, kind of like fundamentalists of their day. And they thought their religious zeal kind of clogged up the smooth marriage between their temple duties and their political duties. As different as these two groups were, they had one thing in common. They felt threatened by Jesus, and they didn't like him. To the Sadducees, Jesus was a potential threat to their status and to the status quo of their relationship with Rome. To the Pharisees, Jesus was teaching things contrary to many of their interpretations of Scripture. So, they decided together in an unlikely alliance to test Jesus. Interesting thing, in the Greek, what they're actually doing is tempting Jesus. We haven't seen Jesus in a sentence with temptation until chapter 4, way back in the beginning of the gospel, when he's tempted in the desert by Satan. And what do they tempt Jesus to do? These Pharisees and Sadducees? They tempt him to show them a sign. Did you hear what I just said? They were tempting Jesus to show them a sign. I'm, are you serious? Have you, been, have you guys been reading the same Bible I've been reading? Let's, let's look at this. For 15 chapters now, we've been reading about Jesus and the sign-filled circumstances around His birth. Remember, angels coming to people and stars in heaven leading pagan magi all the way across the world to come and revere the baby Jesus? We've seen Jesus teach like no other teacher. And crowds of people saying, Who is this who teaches as one who has authority? Not like our scribes and Pharisees. And we've seen Jesus do amazing things like heal the lame and unstop deaf ears and loosen mute tongues, open blind eyes, cast out demons from people with a word. This is the same Jesus who walks on water, controls nature, even raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And of course, we read how he just multiplied food, seven loaves and a few fish for 4,000 people. After three plus years of this type of ministry, 
I find it very hard to believe that these Pharisees and Sadducees had not heard of these mighty deeds. In fact, I think they're ticked because they have heard of them and they're concerned that Jesus is is getting a following. So what other kind of sign could they possibly want? I think this is an issue of perspective. Most confrontations are. The kind of sign they were looking for was shaped by their expectations of who they thought Jesus should be. And this is where the Dagobah system in Empire Strikes Back is so helpful. It's illustrative. It's illustrative. Okay, so after narrowly escaping death on the Hoth system, Luke Skywalker learns that he's got to travel in his X-Wing fighter to the Hoth system to train under Yoda the Jedi Master. Right? This is where Yoda the Jedi Master has been hanging out. Luke had never met Yoda face to face, but undoubtedly he had heard the stories of this renowned master. After all, Yoda at this time had been alive for 900 years, and his life read like an epic novel. Yoda was known for his wisdom and his power and as a mighty warrior. Luke, I'm guessing, was expecting to meet someone about 6'5", maybe gray, but still that sinewy, strong, wise, put together... A mighty warrior. Someone who looked the part. But Luke's experience on the Dagobah system was one disappointment after another. First of all, he crashed land his X-Wing fighter into a swamp. Water and mud in his space boots. Seaweed or swamp weed on top of his R2 unit. He tries to regain composure then by setting up camp. And he tries to clean himself up and get his head together because, he must think, that's what Yoda would find impressive. He wants to put on a good face for this master when he finds him. All of a sudden, this strange little green creature comes into his camp, knocking his things over and getting into Luke's space-age Tupperware, hitting him with his cane like some kind of geriatric raccoon, and... Luke is just ticked off at this point. He's got more important things to do. After all, he's looking for a mighty Jedi warrior to train under. And of course, the irony is that the master Luke is looking for is under his nose. Literally, because Yoda's like three feet tall. He's arthritic and green midget who speaks with jacked up syntax. And, and that guy is Yoda himself. In a sense... That's the phenomenon that takes place in the story from Matthew's Gospel. Both the Sadducees and Pharisees were looking for the promised Messiah of Israel. The Pharisees, in general, were looking for a religious Messiah who would draw the nation of Israel back to its roots, its religious roots, its roots in Torah, in Scripture. The Messiah, they thought, would teach the Torah, and in their thinking, would bring people to a golden age of religious purity and piety, and then, and only then, God the Father would act and would free them from Rome and would reinstate this nation of Israel. Jesus did not match this description. After all, He sometimes healed people on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was famous for saying things like, well, you've heard it, it was said, but I say. Like, who is this guy reinterpreting Scripture as if he wrote it? Or maybe he did. No, Jesus is not the kind of Messiah the Pharisees were looking for. 
Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were more secular in their view. The Messiah that they were pinning their hopes on would be a strong leader in the political and military sense. He'd be a statesman who would bring Israel back to prominence in the world scene of politics and power. And, of course, the Sadducees would be an integral part of that entourage, wouldn't they? For the Sadducees, Jesus was way too backwoods, too rough around the edges. He didn't seem to be gathering the right kind of people. Instead of gathering the strong and the upwardly mobile, Jesus was gathering the people in the margins. At least those were the people who followed him most often. Clearly, Jesus is not the Messiah they were looking for. So then, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What did the signs he was doing say about his identity? It's no accident that Matthew orders his gospel in the way he does. You've got this whole life of Jesus to tell. How are you going to tell it? How you tell a story matters. And Matthew decides to put these few episodes right before this confrontation. In fact, Tim McAvoy just read all three of these episodes in Scripture. They are the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. This is a Gentile family. The the healing of the crowds and the feeding of the 4,000. Each of these mighty deeds says something about Jesus' character, about his compassion, and about his power, his ability, his authority. But there's another message that spans all of Jesus' mighty deeds. You see, hundreds of years before Jesus was enfleshed in, in that first century AD, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And while in captivity, God the Father spoke through the prophets to encourage and challenge the people. And and these prophets spoke about a deliverer, one like Moses who would deliver and lead his people. Now, what happened when Moses was leading the people in the wilderness? He prayed, and food fell out of heaven and fed hungry people by the thousands in the wilderness. Just like Jesus fed 4,000 people in this story. As the narrative of those prophets moved forward, God spoke of something else, something very mysterious. He spoke of a day, not only when a Messiah would come, but when He Himself would come and rescue the people directly. And when that day would come, certain things would happen. You could look out for them. One of those things was Gentiles would come to place their faith in the God of Israel. And they would be included in the people of God. Kind of like a Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. And there's something else. The lame would walk. The blind would see. The mute would talk. The deaf would hear. It is no accident that of all of the mighty deeds that Jesus does, of all of the healings He performs, the Gospel writers focus on these particular things. Because those are what the prophets were talking about. Those are the things that were supposed to happen not when a Messiah would come, but when God would come. You should be getting goosebumps about now. I'm telling you, man, this is, this is powerful stuff. These are not activities expected of just the Messiah. These are activities expected when the reign of God Himself will come to earth. So Jesus has about had it, because... We're in chapter 16, and he's had these confrontations before this point. We've read about them in the weeks and months prior. So Jesus says, look at, look at you people, 
can interpret other signs. You can look at the sky and tell if it's going to be rainy or sunny. You don't even have a triple Doppler radar with storm tracker. You know, you look at the sky, you amateur meteorologist, and you can tell me what's going to happen. But in your own realm of expertise, in the scriptures, in representing God, the things that you're supposed to know... How is it that you're missing all of these signs in my teachings, in my healings? You know what? Your your, Your hearts and your heads are so hardened, so callous, that I don't think one more sign is going to change you. You're only going to get one more sign. And that sign is the sign of Jonah. This should give us pause for a minute. What is the condition of your heart? What is holding you back? And I'm asking myself this question all week. What is holding you back from more fully following Jesus? What are you waiting for in taking that next step of obedience? Are you waiting for a sign? Are you waiting maybe for a certain feeling? An open door, as we say in Christianese, or the proverbial writing on the wall. Jesus is well aware of of our fickle hearts. He knows how easily we're discouraged and confused, but He's given us something better than fleeting signs. He's given us His Word and His Holy Spirit. He's He's given us something concrete. A concrete direction in life. Here it is at its basic form. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And make disciples. Yes, Jesus, oh, I'm so thankful that he's still in the business of guidance. He's still in the business of calling people to specificity. But don't mistake the lack of a particular spectacular sign as Jesus' silence. If you're not called to something right now, if you're not hearing it, if you're not feeling it right now, then guess what? You're not stuck in limbo. You have great freedom to choose. What are you passionate about? What gifts and talents has God already given you? How might you love God, love neighbor, make disciples where you're at? Something to chew on. Back to our story. Jesus tells these Pharisees and Sadducees, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. I'm going to give you one more. It's called the sign of Jonah. The idea here is that in the story of Jonah, Jonah refuses to respond to God's call. And so you know the story. He's on a ship gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by a giant sea creature, stays in the belly of this creature miraculously for three days, and then is vomited literally onto a seashore in the land he was supposed to go in the first place. And of course, when Jonah then uh, says, thank you for this new life, uh, this new chance, and goes and reluctantly preaches to these pagan people, the Ninevites, they repent. 
And God is is shown to be vindicated. He's shown to be right and Jonah is shown to be wrong. Well, in similar fashion, Jesus would be in the tomb three days, but then rise again. And upon his resurrection, Jesus would be vindicated before his enemies. He would be proven right. And that is the sign that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have to deal with after Easter Sunday. So Jesus leaves them behind and gets into a boat with his disciples. Now after nearing the shore on the other side of the sea, his disciples go, Oh dang, we forgot the bread! Right? We forgot the food. We don't have what we need. They're going to this more desolate side of the sea. They're kind of concerned about that. So they're, they're thinking to themselves about food, or lack thereof, and Jesus takes this moment, I'm not even sure he hears them at this point, but he takes this teaching moment, you know, uh, we've just had this confrontation with the Sadducees and Pharisees, and, and he wants to inform his disciples, so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now this is a strong statement, because in Jewish culture, leaven was often associated with impurity and evil. So Jesus is basically saying that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that their teaching is impure and evil, and like yeast, it spreads and permeates people and cultures and hearts and minds, just like yeast does in dough. Well, now this is an interesting statement on a number of levels, but just more, the most plain level is, what is this teaching he's talking about? Because Pharisees and Sadducees did not have much in common in their teaching. They looked at different books of the Bible differently. And on one of their main doctrines, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So what teaching did they possibly have in common? Simply put, it's their negative response to Jesus. If faith in Jesus is the way to eternal life, then any teaching against faith in Jesus would lead to death. And Jesus is warning his disciples and he's warning us to beware of teaching that suggests we put our faith in someone else other than Jesus or something else other than Jesus. Jesus being a good teacher takes advantage of this teaching moment. But as soon as he mentions leaven, his disciples start thinking it's about the bread. Leave it to a bunch of boat full of guys to be thinking about food all the time. Now, to Jesus, this isn't just a simple misunderstanding. When Jesus realizes that they're concerned about not having any food in the boat, he realizes there's a more fundamental problem. Remember, Jesus isn't just like pretending to disciple 12 men. He's absolutely really planning on those twelve to carry on the seeds of apostolic faith when he raises. And we already know Judas got lost in that shuffle, right? This is unscripted, but you need to hear this. Your discipleship is not just a, a thing that you get to choose or not. Like it's not that big a deal. What if... Jesus is really counting on your and my response to him. What if he's really counting on our obedience to carry the seeds of faith? It's my conviction that there's no what if about it. That's exactly what we are as the church. So this is a big deal to Jesus, that these guys are not 
well, let me just read what he says. You men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of, for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of leftovers we had? Or the seven loaves that fed 4,000 people and how many full baskets he had left over that time? These men had on two separate occasions not only witnessed do a miraculous feeding, but they had been the ones to distribute the food. They actually touched it. They held the baskets around that when all these thousands of people are taking out of it, it's not going away. In fact, after we fed everyone to fullness, we had all of this left over. They were there. They were the ones touching the bread. And if you want to get really crazy, we go to John's Gospel. He doesn't even start with anything when he turns the water to wine. He actually changes the molecular structure of H2O and makes it into vino. I love it. Woo! Jesus has had it with the sign-seeking but never believing, understanding but never standing under. He leaves the Sadducees and Pharisees, but in the boat, His own disciples, He's again surrounded by failure to understand. Now, again, I think the Dagobah system could really help us out here. Luke now has understood that this little green guy is Yoda. He's been training under him. And I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or remember the scene, but there's this one scene where he's starting to get the hang of the force. And Luke is literally doing a one-handed handstand. Yoda is on his feet up in the sky. He's levitating R2-D2 and got these rocks like he's making a cairn of rocks with the force. He's doing all of this at the same time. Like he's really getting it. And then all of a sudden... Everything falls down. He gets distracted. His ship begins to sink in the swamp. All of a sudden, he loses concentration. Everything, including Yoda, hits the ground. Now, faced with this new obstacle, Luke gets discouraged and mopes around like typical Luke Skywalker who just wanted to go to Tashi Station for his power converters. With Luke, it is always what cannot be done. He sees the obstacles, but not the solution, not the opportunity. He gives up when he has Yoda, the Jedi Master, sitting right next to him. Now, of course, Yoda takes him to school and is able to do his thing where he gets the ship out of the swamp. And Luke learns that he shouldn't whine. No, actually, he never learns that. I just tell my kids that that's what the story is about. No. Luke learns that nothing is impossible when Yoda's near, right? When his master's near. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this story. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. In fact, the more challenging the obstacle, the more powerfully Jesus seems to come through. In the feeding of the 4,000, how many loaves does he have? Yeah, seven. And a few fish, which as we discussed in small group, a few is always three or more, but not less, not more than six, because that's a half dozen, but it's more than two. Okay, so, uh, so when he has 4,000 people to feed and starts off with seven loaves and a few fish, he's able to feed, and how many baskets left over? Seven, right, okay. Now when he has more mouths to feed, 
5,000 mouths plus to feed. He has less to start off with. He has only five loaves and two fish. And in that scene, he has 12 baskets left over. Now these 12 men are sitting in a boat without bread, but with Jesus. The same Jesus who fed thousands with next to nothing. The same Jesus who walked on water. The same Jesus who made the heaven and the earth. Do they really think they're going to starve when Jesus is in the boat? Years later, the Apostle Paul would learn this lesson when he wrote to the church in Philippi. He wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And he says, The peace of God that transcends all understanding is going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the, the sign of Jonah has come and gone that, that Jesus was alluding to. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's sent His Spirit upon the world. And those of you who have been baptized, have had your lives touched by Jesus, you've experienced, I know you have, certain points in your life where you've known Jesus has interceded. He has intervened. And maybe today you're struggling with an obstacle in your life. Maybe you're anxious about the unknown, about not having enough, about not having what it takes inside you. Hear the good news. Jesus is in the boat with you. The one who created all things is with you. He's able. He's able to do all good things. He's committed to do all good things. Have you forgotten? Have you become overwhelmed with what cannot be done more than viewing life uh, and its possibilities? Behold, Jesus proclaims, I make all things new. And for those of you who have yet to put your faith in Jesus, for those who may be facing insurmountable odds of guilt, of feeling unworthy, of feeling beyond rescue, Jesus is in your boat too. The same Jesus who saw humanity lost without hope, the same Jesus who took the initiative to put on flesh and live among us, is the same Jesus who gave up his life and death for the world to forgive you and I of sin. That Jesus is alive by the power of the living God. And that Jesus wants nothing more than for you and I to place our trust in Him. At this point, we are going to transition to our healing prayer time. And I'm going to invite Joan Youngquist to come help me with that. We'll have two stations um, where you are free to come forward for prayer.